This is an ABC podcast. You're listening to A Big Country. I'm Clint Jasper. Thanks for joining me as we meet the people and visit the places that make up a big country. This week, we're learning about the power of music. We'll meet the members of a choir from Timor Leste who are sharing their love of music performing in regional Australia as part of a cultural exchange and ongoing friendship with a choir on the New South Wales South Coast. We'll also visit a couple of wineries in the South Australian Riverland where winemakers are using music in an unconventional way as a soundtrack to the fermentation process. There's no solid science on whether sounds can aid fermentation, but they reckon it's worth a crack. And we'll catch up with a flower grower who's as busy as ever, even in the face of cost of living pressures. It's funny, I've been asked this question a few times, whenever there is a bit of a downturn or back in the depression, um, there was a story that flowers were one of the last things that people dropped off their list to buy, which, which I just couldn't believe. And it was because they give instant gratification. That was the theory behind it. Why flowers are still selling well, even as many of us tighten up the purse strings. That is coming up. First today, a new generation of young, unlikely small-scale farmers is beginning to emerge. Many of them grew up in a city and don't have traditional farming backgrounds, but have turned to growing fruit and vegetables as part of a search for a different type of life. They're now finding a receptive market among the country's best new restaurants. Reporter Jeremy Story Carter explains. On a small patch of land on the eastern fringe of Melbourne, you can find a few dozen rows of vibrant coloured vegetables and one bright-faced, dirt-covered young couple. This is our rainbow chard and it's just so amazing at the moment. I don't think we've ever grown it so well. It's got delicious, juicy, colourful stems, yellow, orange, pink and huge leaves. It's great. Chloe Sparks and Jared Gruner are unlikely farmers. Neither grew up on farms, but in the share houses of Coburg and Canberra. Last year, they uprooted their lives and became full-time vegetable growers. We've never worked harder in our lives for less money, but we've never been happier. During the pandemic, Chloe studied psychology and worked as an admin assistant, while Jared was a landscape gardener. The couple, both 30, have become part of a growing new movement of young, small-scale producers with unconventional entry points into agriculture. Within a year of planting their first crops, their business, Dog Creek Growers, is already supplying some of Melbourne's best restaurants. You know, in school, I was never told that I could be a farmer. (laughs) And I can, I am. But it's not something I ever thought I was allowed to do. I think more people are realising that they're allowed to do that. In a red brick Collingwood warehouse in Inner Melbourne, fruit and vegetable wholesaler Kim Driver sifts through some of the best produce in town, tasting as he goes. No, we eat the produce all day. It's, <laughs> it's one of the perks of the job. But first thing in the morning I come in, I look through the fridge to see what's come in, check out the quality of everything, and then I'll grab a couple of apples, a couple of plums, and just snack on it all day. And everyone that works here does the same thing probably ends up costing a lot of money, but I like that the staff's eating good produce. He works with around 100 typically small-scale growers, combining their produce and selling to a network of more than 250 restaurants, wine bars and cafes. A lot of the new breed of farmers will come from whatever background that's not farming. They'll be university educated and it's 
usually environmentally conscious. That's what draws them to it. Not every farmer wants to have a hundred hectare farm. You know, everyone's position's different. And I'll support anyone that's flavour and soil focused. So if someone comes to me and they've got five bunches of baby leeks, but they're the best baby leeks I've ever tasted, I'll buy those five bunches. Kim Driver says a mixture of climate anxiety and a general dissatisfaction with work and life in the city are often common factors among the new generation of farmers. Increasingly, he's seeing a desire from chefs to work directly with farmers and know more about how their produce is grown. I think chefs' consciousness, especially in the last decade, have changed drastically. In my early days, it was um, price and yield focused, where a lot of venues wanted to keep the same menu for a longer period of time and they wanted, say, tomatoes in the middle of winter. So the focus wasn't on flavour so much as it is now, or sustainability. It was yield and price, always. Where now the conversations I have with chefs are, what are the producers growing practices and how's the flavour of the product? They need consistency always. You can't change a full menu every day. But we work with our producers to have that consistency. So we crop plan with them. And then I menu plan with chefs as well. So I'll have a good understanding of what's coming from the farms, what needs, you know, what they're growing and what the demand will be from the chefs. A few suburbs over in North Melbourne, Nagesh Sethia is preparing for service at his acclaimed Mauritian restaurant, Munzak. He began sourcing direct from Chloe and Jared at Dog Creek Growers earlier this year, a relationship he says perfectly suits small restaurants like his. So our restaurant is quite small, uh, being at 25 seats, which is why we can work with such small-scale farmers. But I guess having an intimate connection with, say, two people that have a couple of acres of land is more meaningful than an operation of 50 people on that much more land because they have that level of control and level of influence on what they're doing and can also share their process and their story with you they can give you a realistic idea of what's coming seasonally or what's on the way out. With a restaurant that only seats around 25 people and a farm that's less than an acre in size, neither chef nor grower appears destined to become rich. But in tough economic conditions and a housing market out of reach for many young people, Nagesh says wealth has never been the ambition. For most people like myself in this sort of extended community, we're not tied down to making a lot of money and I think we're comfortable with that and we're comfortable with I suppose living within our means and on the flip side of that earning within our means. It's a similar story out on the farm at Dog Creek Growers where Chloe Sparks says a move to small-scale farming has created a more meaningful life for her and her partner. Well, it's great because we get to work together. We get to grow something together that feels really important and that we feel is making an impact. And we get to work in a way that matches our values, matches, you know, you don't often get to choose what what you do. And we do. We get to make decisions together every day. That's worth everything to us. The sound of birdsong fills the air at this vineyard nestled on the banks of the River Murray in South Australia's Riverland region. 
but inside a shed on the property, winemaker Adam Barrich is working to a different soundtrack. From the minute the grapes come in here until they go into the bottle, that's playing. Hello, I'm Eliza Berlage. I'm visiting organic and biodynamic vineyard and winery Whistling Kite Wines. Adam's parents, Pam and Tony Barrage, have been using biodynamic farming principles at this property since the 1970s. And in the 1990s, they installed audio boxes in their vines that play resonating sound frequencies based on birdsong. Then, when Adam began making his own wines three years ago, he started experimenting with playing music known as whole tones. The whole tones is a series of songs and they are designed or composed in such a manner as to each of them resonates at a certain frequency, which it's believed has healing properties. So be it make you more relaxed, better sleep, or even if you're one of those creative types, um, it might trigger inspiration. Why did you decide to start doing this? It was there, I, we had it available, and I thought that if the music can heal the world, as it claims, then it probably can't do the wine any harm. And it's just also nice to have playing while you're working in the, like, making the wine as well. Okay, so we've just a small setup, and we'll do very small amounts. Currently, we've got two fermenters going with the Monte Pulciano in there, which we picked last Sunday. Um, so that's being picked here, it's being crushed here and put into the fermenters. Um, after it's had some time on, sk on skin, we'll use the basket press to press the wine off and put it into barrels, then put that to bed until probably late spring, early summer, when we'll bottle it. I like that you've used the word put to bed because your setup with the fermenters sort of feels a bit like a nursery with those whole tones playing um, from that speaker system in the shed with the fermenters. And then you've got also, you described it to me as some electric blankets? Uh, that's right. Um, because we're so close to the end of the season, it, nights are getting cooler, days aren't getting all that warm. So just to give the yeast that's doing the fermenting a bit of a helping hand, we throw an electric blanket on from time to time just to warm, warm it up a little bit. Like a nursery is probably not a bad description for it because you are nurturing something from one thing into something completely different. When you started doing this, what did other people say about it, playing whole tones to your fermenting wine? Um, it depends who you ask. Um, a lot of people will, well, sorry, not a lot, but some people tend to think it's a bit of a um, hippie kind of rubbish. But to that, you know, all you can argue is that you know, if that's the worst thing I'm doing, it's playing this music with a good intent, I'll cop that criticism. Even if it's not doing anything, the intent is there. Just a little north of the Barrich Vineyard, Monash farmer Andrew Duncan is also doing things a little different to the mainstream on his farming property. Basically, this is a forest. A forest, it's a, it's a food forest. It's all about carbon capture and biodiversity. That's the crux of it. Sitting atop a timber tree house and looking over a dense ecosystem, he's explaining his approach to land management and growing food through permaculture. Probably 50% of the trees on the block are not fruiting trees, but they're still useful. They can either be nectar trees or pollen trees for bees or whatever, or they're just things for capturing carbon and creating better soil. Really, that's what it comes back down to, is just building better better soil, that's where it all starts. Andrew Duncan also takes a rather unconventional approach when it comes to fermenting the wine grapes grown here on the property. Since 1990, he's been fermenting his wines to a soundtrack of Baroque music. The beauty of wine is that it's got the ability 
to express a sense of place. And this is this whole concept of terroir. It's a very big picture thing. And part of that picture, of course, is is sound as well as, you know, the diverse system that it's grown in. But, but like, for starters, you know, it's birdsong. I mean, like, when I first bought the place, it was just a an empty vineyard and a patch of scrub and there were probably two different species of birds now there's over 50 different species so for starters there's a lot of bird song out there okay so um then we come back into you know the, like the, the ability of um to be able to imprint energy patterns on onto water basically so the work of a moto you know so and then then that keys into the whole biodynamic thing you know imprinting energy patterns on water and wine's basically just water so you know you can change the structure of something it might be only be transient but it is it you can change structure so um yeah sound yeah sound sound is a relevant part of terroir andrew duncan has no way to measure what impact if any the music has on his wines. Sue Bastian is an Associate Professor of Enology and Sensory Studies at the University of Adelaide. She says while the effect of music on human emotions is widely accepted, research into how music affects wine production is limited. As whole organisms, as humans, we know that you know music can have effect on our moods and emotions and, and also how we perceive wine, but there's um, some indication that sound and including frequency and intensity versus silence can actually impact um, singular cellular organisms like yeast and, and bacteria. Um, and so it's possible that in, in fermentation, so when the, the yeast are busily uh, converting the sugars and the ethanol and other precursors in the grape must, they are possibly able to create a different range, different profile of, of beautiful aromas and, and smells. So um, there, there is potential uh, for, for that. Sebastian from the University of Adelaide ending that story from Eliza Burlidge. You can read more about those winemakers who are using music in the winery as they ferment grapes. You'll find it on the RN website, abc.net.au slash RN. Just look for a big country. Still to come, we'll visit a flower farm where thousands of brightly coloured chrysanthemums are being picked and packed and hear how music is strengthening the friendship between Australia and its youngest neighbour. As Vanessa Milton reports, a choir from East Timor has made its first visit to Australia as part of an ongoing choir exchange between the two countries. It's a 20-year friendship born from decades of struggle. In the wake of Timor-Leste's painful path to independence, the new nation forged a network of grassroots connections with towns across Australia. For the Bega Valley in New South Wales, what began as a relationship offering practical support with infrastructure and education has now blossomed into a two-way cultural exchange. David Croden is the cultural coordinator for the Bega Valley Advocates for Timor-Leste. Singing is such an integral part of their culture. They love singing and they sing really joyously. We ended up doing a choir exchange. In 2019, a choir from the Bega Valley travelled to perform in Timor-Leste. Now the Korulian Timor Choir has come to visit Australia. For the choir's conductor, Aju Amaral, 
It's a rare chance to perform internationally with singers from two remote regions in Timor-Leste. We come to promote our cultures to our neighbours like Australia and it's really great opportunity for us. The Timorese singers are performing with local choirs, including the Australian First Nations choir Jinama Yiliga. Bunja-Yuan woman and singer Michelle Davison says the groups have bonded over the healing power of music. It's a really powerful thing, how spiritually uplifting it, it, it is. It has been for myself in my personal journey in life. It's a sentiment echoed by the Korulian Timor Choir's director, Ego Lemos. He lived through Timor-Leste's brutal fight for independence that saw one quarter of the population killed. Two decades later, he's using music to find peace. My experience during Indonesian occupation 24 years is a very painful, but I feel grateful that uh, I'm still survive. Now we're living in the free country. Music is bringing people alive again, yeah. Australian First Nations singer Michelle Davidson says the experience has been enriching. Just learning the language, listening to how they sound. I like to just look and see how much joy other people get out of it. Yeah, the last three weeks have uh, been pretty full on. I've had 10 to 12 workers basically working eight-hour days to, uh, to harvest them. It's been a busy few weeks for flower grower Vaughan Kemsley on his farm at Paper Beach in the West Tamar region of northern Tasmania. He's growing a range of chrysanthemums and has been flat out picking thousands of bunches in the lead-up to Mother's Day. And while this is a particularly busy time of the year, it's a year-round operation. Like planning starts as soon as these, uh, the ones we're standing in get picked um, for the next year. Basically, we start the cuttings in about November. I get a lot of my cuttings in from uh, Crisco Flowers over in, in Victoria. And then we plant them out in about uh, second week of December all the way through to the second week of January. So we stagger those um, plantings uh, so we can get uh, different varieties in over that period of time. Hello, I'm Larissa Smith and I'm chatting with Vaughan Kemsley as he snips flowers to go into bunches. He says there's a couple of varieties that are particularly in demand. Well, pinks and whites for this <laughs> for this time of the season. Um, mothers tend to like pinks and they tend to like the, the big white disbud chrysanthemums. For Mother's Day I grow two, two types, the spray chrysies and the disbud chrysies. 
Uh, the disc bud crizzies are the big headed crizzy you see with just one single head on them. They take a fair effort to get to that. I have a team of disc budders come in between March and April um, who are working every day to remove the side laterals to create that, that mum, that, that, that chrysanthemum. Crizzies are known as a short short day plant so as the days shorten the plant starts to flower you know that's why you plant in basically the middle of summer and then towards the towards the back end of autumn you're getting them to flower that's the natural season what's special about this pink variety well this pink variety is actually called lollipop it's what's called a bicolor it's a bicolor uh, probably a decorative it looks a little bit like a, a, a button crizzy it's pink and purple and it's just got a nice tone to it and yeah the mums like that uh, you know delicate look it's it's quite a nice looking crizzy actually and next door you've got some lemons uh, that were picked probably in the last day or so yeah no they're probably yeah probably two or three days ago we got those that's a variety that's reasonably popular uh, in the um, supermarket bunches You've got chrysanthemums grown outside as well as inside polytunnels across the farm. What's the difference there with those growing techniques? Okay, so the, the, the big greenhouses, that, that's where I grow all year round. That's, that's on a cycle of planting every seven to ten days and that goes 12 months of the year. So that, those greenhouses are they're heated, we light the crops to trick them into um, thinking that they, you know, so they get lights for the first 21 days. We're basically tricking them into their season. So after 21 days we turn the lights off and then 46 days later we get our first bloom starting and ready to harvest. So in the background you can hear that, that small tractor getting the next bed ready. That's right, yeah. Tristan, one of my uh, uh, young workers, is um, working up the ground ready for planting uh, later this week actually. We plant 16,000 cuttings every seven to 10 days. The girls that are in there picking at the moment, uh, they, we pick about 3,000 bunches off a bay. Uh, and that's every, you know, basically every 10 days. Over winter it's a little bit slower because of the daylight hours and probably not enough light. We've got blackout screens that come across of a night to keep the heat in. That They also uh, trick the flowers into thinking they're coming into, into autumn, winter um, during the middle of summer so that we can grow them all year round. How do you keep the flowers looking their best? So basically when they get picked, they get straight into the water, they take up the water and then the next day we take them out, out of the water and into the boxes and we store them in the, in the chiller between zero and four degrees, around two degrees is optimum. And that, that can hold them for up to two weeks if we want. And then as soon as the florists and the wholesalers get them, they just recut the stems, put them in water and, and away they go. So um, they, they, the crizzies hold very well in, in the cool room. Obviously you can't pick everything, I'm picking thousands thousands of bunches uh, over the Mother's Day period so it's a bit hard to pick all of those in the last two days just before Mother's Day. And is there approach to picking too? Do you have some open, some half closed? Uh, look the earlier ones we definitely pick a bit tighter. They don't tend to come out in the cool room because they're, they're keeping it you know two degrees so and it's also dark. They're in a box. Um, as soon as they see light again get water and the temperature rises they'll start they'll they'll take up the water and then then they'll continue their blooming. Um, the ones that are coming out later this weekend for, for delivery to the florists, um, they were picked earlier earlier this week. So uh, looking forward to... The product's pretty good this year, actually, looking really good. What are you finding in terms of uh, people spending their money on flowers? Is it a luxury in 2023? 
It's funny, I've been asked this question a few times, whenever there is a bit of a downturn or back in the depression, um, there was a story that flowers were one of the last things that people dropped off their list to buy, which, which I just couldn't believe. And it was because they give instant gratification. That was the theory behind it. I'm not saying that uh, that's happening now, but there I am seeing a bit of a downturn uh, off last year, but I think last year was one of the best Mother's Days and best seasons we've had here. And I don't know whether that's coming off COVID where there was a lot of money around, you know, with the JobKeeper and job, job seeker, people had that extra income. There was definitely seemed to be a lot more money around. What do the women in your life usually get for Mother's Day? Uh, chrysanthemums. <laughs> I do. I, I do. Uh, that's a good question. They definitely get a big bunch of uh, white chrysanthemums. And uh, look, my wife's got flowers in the house all the time. My mum's still coming down and helping me out pre-Mother's Day. She helps bunch and sleeve and do all those uh, tasks so I'll make sure they get a big bunch but no I actually went into town yesterday with my wife and purchased a Mother's Day present (laughs) that wasn't flowers. Flower grower Vaughan Kemsley he's the largest commercial chrysanthemum grower in Tasmania and he was very busy in the lead up to Mother's Day but found time to speak to reporter Larissa Smith. Before that Vanessa Milton brought us the story of a choir from East Timor touring regional New South Wales that story featured additional recordings by David Gellin. You can find more on both of those stories online at the RN website just look for a big country under the programs tab. I'm Clint Jasper I'll be back next week with more great stories from regional Australia and Until then, bye for now. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.